Hello and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock, as usual, and I am joined today for this 2018 version of the Evolution Medicine Podcast with Coffee Brown. Help, so, help, I'm being held hostage. Send help. And if we ever get out of this hostage situation, and who knows if we will, uh, perhaps we'll, we'll leave with some something interesting to say about evolution and medicine. And that brings me to the topic of today's podcast, and which is what is the resistance to teaching evolution in medical school, and why isn't evolutionary medicine more popular? And I actually posted something about this on the blog, evolutionmedicine.com, a few days ago. And it was an article by, written by philosopher of science Michael Ruse, who posed just this very question. Why isn't evolutionary medicine more popular than it is? So what are your, what are your thoughts about this? So I took the question literally. I started with reasons why people wouldn't want to involve evolution in uh, medical education. And number one, by a huge margin, is simply religious. I mean, more than half the country... Um, thinks that they don't believe in evolution on religious grounds. And this is not a debate that can be won by facts or evidence or reason, because religion depends on faith and science depends on doubt. No wonder they don't know how to talk to each other. However, I'm in the school that says nobody doesn't believe in evolution. Either, Either you understand it or you don't understand it. We see it all the time. Everybody knows when a kid doesn't look like their parents. Everybody knows fruit flies are bred with special characteristics all the time. Everybody knows microbes are adapting to antibiotics, and so on down the line. And so, duh, we see evolution around us constantly. Um, People may not fully understand all of its ramifications and some of its rules, but the notion that there's not both practical and uh, experimental evidence for evolution is ridiculous. The other common objection you hear is that it can't explain the origin of life, but it absolutely does. You can follow the evolutionary trail backward all the way to simple uh, molecules. Right. And that, you know, we should perhaps define our terms. And, you know, evolution in the way that we're talking about it now uh, is a process whereby it explains the origin of ourselves. And this is what concerned Darwin when he wrote On the Origin of Species. And the idea that there's common descent, that everything on, on planet Earth evolved from a common ancestor and did so by the mechanism of natural selection, which, of course, as you mentioned, talking about antibiotic resistance has direct implications to medicine. And it's shocking to me that we don't talk about it more to our medical students and among ourselves. Well, this may be a matter of practical prioritization. The medical school curriculum only has so much space. In my reading, I only have so much time. And I'm likely to prioritize things I think I'm going to use clinically in the near future over things that may feel important, but theoretical and abstract. In other words, is evolutionary medicine more in the category of basic science, or is it a more applied, immediately useful science? Well, okay. I think that you're right. I think that is an objection. People think, well, gosh, this is a sort of a meta-level way of thinking about medicine. It doesn't really apply to the day-to-day taking care of patients. Again, I'm giving a straw man argument here because I don't think that that's true. But, but really, when we look at the medical school education, there's all kinds of stuff that students learn when they're preparing both to go to medical school and in medical school that have almost nothing to do with direct patient care. Well, every learning student who goes to medical Krebs school. Krebs cycle. 
or learning some basics of organic chemistry. Those details may have no relevance to making a decision about whether to prescribe vancomycin or unison to a given patient. I think they're important. Every student has to have taken some biology classes before right. going to medical school. And I would hope that evolution is always covered in biology classes. Yeah. Um, I'm not aware of anywhere it wouldn't be. And, and you're right. And so others, Randy Nessie, Steve Stearns, other people that have written about evolutionary medicine, and myself, we have made the point that evolutionary biology is, is a basic part of understanding biology. In other words, you can't understand biology without understanding evolution. And Theodosius Dobzhansky said that best, that nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. Mm -hmm. If that's the case and biology is the basic science for medicine, then you think that evolution is required to understand medicine too. But again, we just don't talk about it. It doesn't get the attention that I think it should. Is it left out, do you think, of medical education, or is it more that it's woven throughout as part of the, the broad milieu of how we understand biology throughout medical education? So in my classes, it'll come up every once in a while that there's an evolutionary explanation for something or other that we're studying, but I don't have a separate block where I teach evolutionary medicine. It may be that I should, but I haven't up till now. And coffee, that's why we are having this conversation, because I agree with you. It should be woven into our thinking uh, and applied to a variety of different topics. And maybe that is the best way to do it. But this is a, a debate within the field of evolutionary medicine, which is, should it really be a, a foundational idea that really applies to everything? And therefore, we might say that everybody is doing evolutionary medicine, or really is it a distinct mode of thinking and critical thinking that leads to different outcomes and is distinct from the standard way of doing business? And I don't think that debate has an answer, at least not yet. My sense of medicine is that it is already a foundational ideal that's woven through everything. I do think it helps us to understand some things better when we focus and think explicitly about evolutionary medicine. Um, there are a lot of things about the human body. I often say nature is an idiot savant, all right? And so there are a lot of weirdnesses about the way that our body works or responds to disease and so forth that make no sense except, as you said, in the light of evolution. So is it a foundational concept woven throughout our medical training? Yes. Is it adequately woven throughout? Hmm, that's a good question. Should it be taught as its own topic? Well, given that we have a finite size of curriculum, if for it to move up the priority list, something else has to move down a notch. So we're going to have to ditch biochemistry or, or reject anatomy or lose histology or take out pharmacology to learn about evolution? Well, it probably wouldn't take anywhere near as much time. Um, we could. You certainly could expand it that far. In fact, you could become a medical specialty. That wouldn't surprise me. But it would probably be a research specialty rather than a clinical one. Um, so I don't think you'd have to throw out all of anatomy, but you could skip spleen or something. <laughs> you know? So you've given, you've given a, a few objections to this, uh, to why, or, or reasons perhaps, why emergence, evolutionary medicine is not so popular. So one is the religious one. And a we did talk about this graph that I sent you. This is a Gallup poll done in 2010, 
in which participants were asked which statement comes closest to their views on the origin and development of human beings. And it starts with God created man in present form. Then the next is God developed with, I'm sorry, man developed with God guiding. Uh, thirdly is man developed, but God had no part in the process. And that would just be the conventional scientific way of approaching it. And then the fourth is no opinion. And the two top answers were that God created man in present form, followed by man developed with God guiding. Yeah, and that would be more than half the country. It would be either creationist or uh, teleological. So maybe the reason why there is resistance to teaching evolution in medical school is that administrators who are political beings don't want to have this controversial topic taught in medical school. What do you think about that? Uh, well, medicine touches on a lot of controversial topics. My trigger warning at the beginning of the year is this entire year is going to be sex, drugs, and violence, and we'll fit in rock and roll where we can. Right. <laughs> Which is, that explains uh, you know, pre-medical and emergency medicine, I think, to a T. Yeah, there you go. So, um, pre-hospital and emergency pre-hospital. medicine, yeah. So, I don't think that we should be moved by the popularity of an idea. We should be moved by the strength of evidence for an idea. I would say the exact same thing about climate change. And it does, it does strike me that people that tend to have an interest in evolution also are open to the idea of climate change and its implications. And the people that reject evolution explicitly may, may also reject climate change. Maybe that has to do with uh, faith, as we've talked about, as being a problem. Although, as Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist, has pointed out, in most places, even religious people in other countries don't really object to climate change. But maybe there, there is an interesting thread that seems to weave those two things together. Maybe it's just scientific thinking. Maybe it is sort of long-term thinking. It's not something that happens instantaneously. Maybe it's not as concrete as some other examples in science, but but I do I do think that uh, when you when you point out that that those are two controversial and perhaps dangerous ideas that that, that there's a commonality there. Well, we're really talking uh, about two different populations here. Non-medical people um, may find evolution to be very counterintuitive. The basic rules of it are simple. It's about as difficult to learn as how to, the basic rules for chess. I think it's simple. But the way that it games out is about as complex as chess. And as you get to the more advanced levels, you run into some en passant rules like uh, epigenetics, for example, or um, uh, genetic transposition on chromosomes. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental rules of evolution are very clear and clean and straightforward. And yet, the things that it does are difficult to intuit. Who would have expected that tom turkeys help their brothers reproduce because that's a better strategy for their own genes? Mathematically, it is, but nobody saw that coming. We only figured that out after the fact. And um, here's a great example. In later life, when our blood pressure falls, we activate the same system we would if we were bleeding. If our problem is a weak heart, congestive heart failure, that makes us sicker. But if the problem was that somebody stabbed us, that would actually be the right response to that falling blood pressure. When we're young, we're probably hypotensive because we're bleeding. And so that's when we're going to reproduce. So we could argue that our bodies are designed this way because nature only cares about us until we have our kids and get them far enough along to leave the home. Right. On the other hand, 
the case has been made that the reason we're a long-lived species is that we have institutional knowledge that protects our young people. The longer our elders live, the more of our young people survive to reproduce. Both of those are consistent with our understanding of evolution, but they're opposite answers. And so one of the problems with understanding how evolution games out is that it can be easy to justify opposite answers. Fascinating. That's true, I think, also for a variety of different areas of science that we can get counterintuitive results that are, would otherwise be difficult to explain. All theories correctly predict history. It's only future predictions that tell us how good a theory is. True. And that is, a, I think, a major strength of an evolutionary approach. I can tell you with great confidence that we can predict resistance patterns of microbes in our hospital based on current prescribing habits. Which, incidentally, is only possible because it's such a robust uh, evolutionary event. Antibiotic resistance is evolution in practice and it's experimental evolution. We induce a new threat into the microbes environment. They adapt rapidly to it. They breed really fast so we can watch it happen. And next year we have to come up with a new uh, menu of antibiotics to deal with pneumonia. No, it's a great example. It's the one that I usually start when I'm teaching students in my evolutionary medicine class. It's one that I think people can grasp the importance of. And you're right, it's so robust. If you look at a timeline of when each antibiotic gets introduced into the marketplace and then the timeline of usually subsequent antibiotic resistance, it's remarkable that resistance happens as quickly as it does. And it simply is a factor of use. And what we need to understand and appreciate, and it's nice to do this in an explicit fashion, is that antibiotics are an, an agent of natural selection. And we are too. When we are prescribing these things, we are influencing the evolution of microbes. Mm -hmm. and we don't usually think about our agency in that way and our importance and our responsibility. And to go to your original point, if physicians thought more constantly about evolutionary medicine, we would use antibiotics more appropriately. If the public understood evolutionary medicine a little bit better, they wouldn't be demanding antibiotics for colds because they would realize that we're fast coming to the end of our relative immunity to infectious disease. The antibiotic era is winding down and we're about to all start dying of communicable diseases again. And that could maybe be a public goods problem. So one of the issues and perhaps one of the difficulties in combating the antibiotic resistance evolution problem is that people seem to think that the problem of antibiotic resistance is something that happens to populations, whereas the benefit that you might get from any given antibiotic is a very personal thing. So a physician, a prescriber, and a patient might have to weigh the benefit that an individual patient might get from an antibiotic versus a downstream uh, public goods problem of resistance in the overall population. And I think that's how it's been presented from a, uh, in terms of trying to influence people and prescribing habits. That doesn't seem to do the trick, and patients don't seem to care if resistance happens you know, a month or two down the line. If you tell a patient, though, that by giving antibiotics that they might have a resistant bug selected for in their own gut that might then go on to kill them, then people's ears perk up and people start to pay attention. So when we, make, when we take away the public goods prob, uh, problem out of this and really make it personal, that's when people tend to pay attention. Yeah, I agree with that. The economists call this the tragedy of the commons. The notion is, I wish everybody else would stop using antibiotics inappropriately, mm -hmm. but I'm taking antibiotics every time my temperature is 100. 
And aren't you struck by people that should know better? Like your colleagues, people that work in this building who take antibiotics for a cold when they really... Oh, I'm embarrassed when I see that. It's, a, it's amazingly common. So yeah. physicians, nurses, even though we're telling patients, oh, you have a virus, go home, suck it up, drink some juice and get some sleep. Uh, when they get sick, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by how often physicians and nurses and medical people take antibiotics unnecessarily. Well, while we're on, so that actually segues nicely to uh, one of the books you called my attention to and that I did go over is Why We Get Sick, The New Science of Darwinian Medicine by evolutionist George C. Williams and psychiatrist Randolph Nessie. One of the things they talk about is fevers. The idea is that fever is rougher on the bug than it is on you much of the time. So when we treat every single fever we get, when we immediately clamp it down, we actually help the bugs to live longer. Um, fever is an evolved defense mechanism against microbes, well, against bacteria. Well, microbes in general, actually, some viruses and others too. So we, we don't want to experience the unpleasant sensation. We don't understand that's part of something that was evolved intentionally as an instrument of maintaining our well-being. So we jump on every fever. I don't. I don't treat a fever under 102. I don't touch it. So you might not, but I was working in the ER yesterday, and it wasn't my patient, but I overheard a nurse come and talk to one of the trainees and say, oh, this patient has a temperature of 38.4, which is a fever. Mm -hmm. Can I order some Tylenol, or would you order some Tylenol? Mm -hmm. And I was busy doing something else. I didn't have a chance to intervene before uh, the trainee said, yes, give the patient some Tylenol which illustrates two things. So one is that this is a knee-jerk reaction on the part of nurses by mm -hmm. and large. Well, docs too. Some docs do that. Some docs do too. And that we, we physicians often acquiesce. But I do think it's mostly nurse-driven. Nurses spend more time with their patients. They notice the fevers more often. And I think the most common scenario that I see is that the nurses are coming to the physicians asking for a Tylenol order. And in some cases, and I have an example of this, I took a screenshot of the computer when I was working that the the note says, patient with temperature of 39, Tylenol ordered by NIP. And that's a nurse-initiated protocol. So in some cases, the, the doc is left out of the decision-making yeah. process. But what I tell nurses is, you know, fever can be helpful, just like you, you said. Fever may be an adapted host response to infection and may actually benefit the patient. So what I ask them is, did the, did the patient ask for Tylenol? Do they want treatment for their symptoms? And if they do, I'm happy to treat them and, re and relieve some suffering. Same here. Yeah. But if we're doing it But you're simply, treating their, their discomfort, not yeah. their temperature. And if it's initiated by the patient as opposed to the, the you know, healthcare yeah. provider. If we're doing it because we're noticing a problem, then we're really just treating ourselves. And in fact, we're just treating a number and we're not treating the patient. And I think that that's, that's a huge area where we need to do better. And I mentioned this example because it speaks to your point that greater awareness of evolutionary medicine... This is the kind of error that would be avoided by that. Well, I agree. And, you know, the book by Randy Nessie, uh, my friend, who's now at the Arizona State University uh, Center for Evolutionary Medicine, uh, and, and George C. Williams, they wrote that book in the middle 90s. I think it was 1994. And this whole fever story has been known since the 70s. A guy by the name of Matthew... It was part of my training. Yeah, part of Matthew Kluger. Matthew Kluger, who is here from... He, he did work here in Albuquerque, 
involving uh, Diplosaurus iguanids. These are lizards. And he showed that the lizards exhibited a behavioral fever, and they actually moved in their enclosures closer to a heat source and raised their body temperature when they were inoculated by bacteria. This is working again done in about 1974. As do we. We become heat-seeking when we have ragrams. Yeah, we, we, have, a, we have a behavioral fever. Uh, you try taking the blanket away from someone with a fever, yeah. you know, they're going to they're gonna be really uncomfortable until you, you know, give it back to them. So not only do we have an endogenous fever, uh, but we actually change behaviorally too. So bottom line, it's an evolved response. It's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. We've known this since 1970. Mm-hmm. Do we do anything about it? No. We, in fact, behave in a completely you know, opposite manner in the hospital. And I saw that during my shift yesterday. So what's up with that? Why don't nurses uh, include this as part of their training? So nursing school, I don't have a deep familiarity with. But I do know that their uh, basic training is a different, uh, they cohort separately from us. And mm-hmm. so they may, not, uh, they may not always hear the same lectures that we do. In fact, I would be interested, a side project I have going on is I'd like to uh, make some of the basic training before we silo off into our specialties. I'd like us to train together longer than we do before we all go off and become separate professions. I think that's a great idea. Um, another uh, problem with evolution, evolutionary medicine or the concept of evolution itself is that the selfish gene is a repugnant idea to a lot of people. The notion that we with our great big brains are marionettes for little snippets of genetic material that have no self-awareness just irritates the heck out of a lot of folks. But So can I ask you, Coffee? You, you, I assume you've read the book. Oh, yeah. And what was your reaction to it? Duh. I mean, you know, that was sort of like telling me water is wet, the sun is hot, you know. Uh, But I did like that he created a vocabulary, a model for it. Richard Dawkins himself makes clear this is not a new theory. He's not telling you anything you don't already know. Mm -hmm. He's just creating a language around it that that helps to understand it. Well, many of us, probably the majority of people who are really invested in the idea of evolutionary medicine have read The Selfish Gene and and, and liked it quite a bit. So perhaps that's one area in which people uh, peel off from, from each other in terms of their reaction either to the title or to the, to the book itself? Well, I don't think that the appeal of an idea should be how we judge its validity. Those are two completely separate things. But, it's, but it certainly is. We don't like to think of nature red in tooth and claw, as Darwin described. We like to think about nature as being warm and cuddly. It is both. It is both. It's and a lot of other things besides as right. well. In fact, the more you explore nature and stop trying to box it into a preconception, the richer and more beautiful and more fascinating and amazing the discoveries become. So, yeah, it's red in tooth and claw. Yeah, it's warm and cuddly, and yeah, it's everything else too. In fact, some of the some of the more interesting ideas, recent ideas, have to do with the evolution of cooperation. And mm-hmm. I have, I have uh, colleagues. The Tom Turkeys. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, it's not just even people with a shared genetic. Interest. There are there's there's a increasing body of work to explain why it is that evolution happens even among unrelated people. Well, or even let's take in the animal world. In the case of symbiosis, mm-hmm. flowers and bees do not share genetic material with each other, but they depend on each other for the propagation of their genetic material. Yeah, which is not to say that there never could be conflict between a plant and a bee. Uh, the plant may may want to hold on to a bit more pollen than it wants to than the bee wants to acquire from it, uh, because that pollen is necessary for uh, transmission uh, to another uh, organism. In other words, the the bees are busy harvesting pollen for their own benefit. 
One of the notes I made to myself in thinking about this mm-hmm. topic is that we usually fall into a trap when we get too invested in either or thinking. There are a lot of things that are both and rather than either or. Uh, so, um, well, here's a great example. It is both very important uh, that we reproduce when we're young, and it's probably the reason our prefrontal cortex connects so late, because if we thought about what we were doing, we would delay fertility, right? <laughs> That's a good point. And so the fact that, that we're stupid until we're 25 is not a genetic accident or an right. evolutionary accident. It's like that for a reason, but that reason ends a lot of career plans early. Right. Because unfortunately, the decisions we make before our prefrontal cortex is hooked up can affect our lives forever after our prefrontal cortex is hooked up. That's an excellent point. I would love to see if uh, others have explored that idea. So basically our delayed, our delayed development and, um, and adult behavior, which doesn't happen until our mid-20s, uh, perhaps our 30s, the idea that that's actually an adaptive phenomenon. I, I love that. I wanted to kind of circle back. You know, I, I wrote about Be- this. Before on... we do, um, and I learned a new word around this, antagonistic pleiotropy See? is a word that refers to nature having a different plan for us before and after we reproduce. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about congestive heart failure and the response to blood pressure. And the prefrontal cortex as well with yeah. the examples of antagonistic pleiotropy. So this well, is well, a well enough and broad go enough into, Go into the congestive heart failure name. example again because, again, I, this is why I love talking to you, Coffee. Um, I, think, I think I had heard about this before, uh, but I hadn't thought about it really in terms of antagonistic pleiotropy. But first off, what is antagonistic pleiotropy? So for those of you who can't see Dr. Alcock, he's a young, fit guy who looks like he could easily scale, you know, the shield in, in uh, Yosemite. And Untrue. <laughs> if you were to have low blood pressure right now, the betting odds would be it's because you're bleeding. So we'd activate your renin-angiotensin uh, system in order to retain fluid, raise your blood pressure, increase your intravascular volume. All those are great And hold on, hold on to salt. I, on the other hand, am a doddering old fart of 62. If I'm hypotensive right now, perhaps my heart is weak and I have congestive heart failure. In that case, holding on to sodium and thus fluid and increasing my intravascular volume increases the work of my heart and puts me further behind and drives me further into congestive heart failure. The exact same system that would save Joe's life might kill me. And the reason would be this antagonistic pleiotropy. He might still be having kids, but nature assumes I'm past that point. So you're telling me that the same system uh, that evolved might have two completely different impacts on one's health? Yeah, and I don't think we have to assume it's trying to kill me. It just didn't evolve to protect me. It evolved for a different circumstance that was more relevant in terms of propagation of genes, but less relevant in terms of overall well-being because in our modern world you're way more likely to be hypotensive because of heart failure than you are because somebody stabbed you at least here in the first world and so nowadays this is the wrong adaptation and it also points out something else that's super important which is that as we change the world around ourselves it is no longer the world we evolved our adaptations to we become de-evolved disadapted for the world we are creating well, so that's, that's a commonly called gene-environment mismatch, yep. or the mismatch idea. And it's happening faster that, and faster. That our bodies are mismatched for our current environment. So just looking around this room, it's getting dark outside, and yet we're under artificial lights. 
Uh, our brains and our circadian rhythms that have evolved are mismatched for that. Uh, this place is climate controlled, um, which isn't a bad thing, uh, but it does change our energy balance and might lead to increased weight gain. Uh, there are some volatile organic compounds coming out of this uh, synthetic carpet, uh, which we might make us sick. There's a whole example of things that challenges in our modern environment that we are not evolved to deal with. Up through the at least the end of the Neolithic, we spent vast amounts of time and energy acquiring food. So when we could rest, we did because calories are expensive. But now that food is everywhere and most of our work is sedentary, the very same thing we used to do to prolong our lives is shortening them. So again, this is such a key concept in evolutionary medicine, this idea of mismatch. And it's one that is so easily taught. In my class, when I ask students to come up with a final project and then bring it back to one of the core concepts that we teach, most of them give me an example of this mismatch idea. Because it's, it's simple and easy Everywhere. and obvious. And it's something that we can see really within our own lifetimes that things are changing so dramatically rapidly that clearly things are happening in our environment far faster than even our, uh, our bodies can cope with, let alone human evolution. You and I did a previous podcast on our maladaptation to chronic stress that largely pivoted around this idea. Yeah. So again, why isn't this a foundational topic in medical school? I wasn't aware that it wasn't. I'm a little shocked that it's not. And I do think it's something well, it's not taught in physicians evolutionary need to be terms. aware of all the time. People talk about, you know, we, we think about diet and obesity and diabetes as being primarily environmental. And I think that most people understand that. But again, our vulnerability to the disease and really the, the reason for its existence is certainly not talked about in evolutionary terms most of the time. Well, here's a great clinical ad, uh, application of it, actually. I very often get patients who are anxious. And very often they feel embarrassed and ashamed of their anxiety. I point out to them Everything is on a spectrum. Some of us are harder to rattle. Some of us are easier. And back in the old days, when there were leopards out there in the dark, the guy that was easy to rattle was the guy that kept the entire tribe alive. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, but I think that there is, and we've talked a little bit about this, we've talked about perhaps some political resistance to the idea of evolution in medical school in terms of the people determining the, the curriculum committee. We've talked about the idea that many people in the population simply don't think that we humans evolved, uh, and that's not the reason why we're here. Uh, and I think that that, that that religious component that we, we started off with is, is, a, is a key a piece of information here. Because when we do talk about evolution, people, including many who study evolutionary medicine, are more apt to study the evolution of microbes or pathogens. And then also... The other example that we talked about is that tumors evolve. And people tend to be relatively accepting of that idea that a tumor might be evolving and that this evolution might kill us or that the microbe, the infection that we have in our lungs, could be evolving and that can kill us because of the antibiotic resistance. When evolution is thought of as being a malign force involving something else, we tend to be more accepting of it. But when we think about evolution as something which is keeping our, you know, affects us, and affects our own body's responses to diseases, like fever, as we've talked about, then I think that people tend to have a bit tougher time. Well, physicians, for one thing, I tried to find some data on this and I couldn't, but my sense is that physicians are relatively more religious than other scientists are. Hmm. Certainly, it's part of the milieu of our training and the background of our thought 
that humans are a privileged species compared right. to others. In fact, uh, most physicians build their career by dropping live animals into wearing blenders and then writing papers about it, right? So we think of what happens to other species as being irrelevant to us. Although ironically, it's that very research that we get our medical knowledge from. So I think that for, even for physicians, to see ourselves as a part of the same biological web we see everything else as a part of, can bump into their intuition, can become morally uncomfortable and counterintuitive. And I know that uh, healthcare workers are less mathy than other STEM specialties are, than other STEM fields are. I wonder if we're also a little bit more religious than other STEM fields are. I wouldn't be surprised if that's true, and that would perhaps be an explanation for uh, the topic that we're talking about. And then I think that others might say, you know, even, even if they accept evolution, they just don't see the relevance of it or the importance of it. Or it's possible, uh, we, we talked about how this is, it may be a, just a foundational thing like gravity, which isn't getting important in our, in our daily lives and may be responsible for some of the trauma that we see and the falls and hip fractures in the ER, but we don't debate gravity or talk about its, or its, its importance explicitly when we're, when we're teaching students. I do talk about the, explicitly about the importance of evolution in understanding mm -hmm. pathology, and my professors did. So I'm a little shocked, actually, to hear that it's not widely done. I, I hadn't really considered that. So I'll just tell you a bit, a bit about my own experience. So I teach, I teach evolutionary medicine at two different levels here at the University of New Mexico. I teach a undergraduate and graduate level class in the Department of Biology. I also teach an elective in the School of Medicine. And I've done this since, I think, the 2009, so close to 10 years that I've had these students. And it's, but it's a handful of students, and I always ask them, because we go over these topics. We talk about mismatch. We talk about antagonistic pleiotropy. We talk about the evolution of aging. We talk about fever as a host defense. And I ask them, have they been exposed to these ideas during their medical training? And most of them, and most of them are, are uh, third, fourth year students, they tell me that no, or they've just maybe they heard a snippet of it, but it's not emphasized here in, in their, most of their training. They're hearing it for the first time from me, which is remarkable. Or they'll tell me, as my students did recently, that yeah, they learned about this when they were undergraduates, but they don't hear about it now. So as a bit of a counterpoint to that, and to, and to really show that this is not simply a theoretical enterprise, and that it's worthwhile to do it, I have my students accompany me in the ER, and we talk about evolution in real time. And we talk about antibiotic choices. We talk about how the duration or the dose and the choice of antibiotics affects the evolution of the infection that we're trying to treat and affects the composition of the microbiome in ways that are going to impact that patient. And we talk about, yeah, should we be treating symptoms? When should we worry about side effects? When should we, when should we worry about the lack of efficacy for a lot of the medications that we use because they're, they're, they're actually targeted at host defenses? And... We do change our mind, or I change the student's mind, about what is, what is an appropriate treatment modality. I'm not doing anything outside the standard of care for emergency medicine, but there's plenty of wiggle room Just in terms of the making choices. Of it. And yeah. it shows that it's relevant. And in fact, we are doing evolutionary medicine in real time with real patients. Well, a big uh, 
area, uh, expanding area right now of medicine, a cutting edge area of medicine, that we happen to be one of the centers for actually, our pharmacology department, is pharmacogenetics. We now know that some people have genetic differences in how they react to drugs than other people do. It's actually fairly oldish news, but as a developing science, it's, it's picking up momentum. And nutritional genetics is showing some early promise. I don't yet know whether, whether it's, I don't know how far along they are, but I know it's showing some early promise. And it seems likely to me that nutritional genetics may parallel pharmacogenetics. Yeah, we're not, we're not all the same. There's, and, there's human genetic variation, and that variation actually reflects and our, our evolution is responsible for much of that variation. And many, many of the, the differences that we see among people that are relevant to how we may respond to a drugs are because of natural selection and evolution. Sometimes drift. It can be random, too. Yep. But this is all part of evolution and all part of what we should be teaching our medical students. And getting back to drug choices, uh, codeine is not prescribed to children anymore because we know that there are some... There are some, uh, some folks that metabolize it very well as children and some that don't. So mm -hmm. what can be well tolerated in one child can cause a lethal overdose in another. And so, in fact, codeine is not, we don't, we don't prescribe that to, to kids anymore. Probably shouldn't prescribe it to adults so much either, but, but we do. And that's an example of an evolved uh, trait uh, that's responsible for maintaining this level of variation at the level of metabolism for codeine. Yeah, and there's a subset of people for whom the normal dose of codeine, codeine uh, sorry, coumadin, is a drastic overdose. And you've talked before about the co-evolution of microbiomes mm -hmm. and human uh, physiology. And microbiomes clearly are becoming a more and more important area of medicine all the time. Also, microbiomes evolve really fast compared to us. Right. So we've touched on perhaps the unpopularity of evolutionary medicine, but we contrast that with the popularity of thinking about the microbiome. This is an, you're right, it's an exploding area of science. It's not taught so much in medical school, but it's gonna be more and more. Mm -hmm. And it's such an obvious and wonderful way to uh, lens to look at you know, human microbial coevolution. I think it's a, it's a great way to introduce the idea of evolution to our students. In a, in a way that is compelling, interesting, maybe even more palatable, making them think about, about this in a way which is relevant to taking care of their patients. As far back as when I was in medical school, which was literally in another century, um, well, mine too. <laughs> we used different um, initial drugs for hypertension, mm -hmm. partly based on the ethnicity of the patient. Different demographic groups have different patterns of why they become hypertensive, or how likely they are to become diabetic, or how likely they are to have gallbladder disease or osteoporosis. In fact, um, one, one of the very few places where there's actually some relevance to demographics is actually slightly different patterns of likelihood uh, for various medical problems. And here again, we're slipping into controversial territory. Tell the me idea, about that. Well, the idea of, of race as a biological concept has been debated in both the anthropological and uh, sociological literatures. Uh, its, its importance in thinking about disease uh, is debatable. And people are uncomfortable, I think, in, in thinking about these quote-unquote differences between different human groups that might be so important to actually require different treatments uh, that we, we physicians might, might provide. 
But I'm just telling you, it's, it's an area of controversy. And this may be one, one area where people think about, yeah, evolved differences between different human groups. Uh, race is certainly a hot-button issue that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and might, might actually drive some of the resistance to teaching uh, evolutionary medicine. Interesting. I'm actually, if we, we should probably do a whole other podcast on, on that topic. I'm both surprised and delighted by how little we differ. Yeah, there yeah. are statistical differences among demographics, that's true. But, and here's a concept a lot of people struggle with, again, an evolutionary concept. Very often, the differences between two populations are tiny compared to the differences within a population. Right. And that describes most of the things we think are important about human, uh, the social construct, what I consider a social construct of human races, um, I mean, how tan we are is just not really how I evaluate the people around me. Yeah. And the differences between us that would matter to me, integrity, ability, uh, longevity, intelligence, those vary so little statistically between groups, if they're measurable at all, and so greatly within a group that it's just ridiculous to, to make these external markers so important compared to the real things that matter about us. Right. And there was a nice article, which I don't have at my fingertips, but it was written by a woman who was of mixed race, who had a, you know, a black parent and a, and a white parent, who was surprised that her physician and care team decided on a, on a, a treatment that was really based on, on her supposed black race or black ethnicity. And when in fact she's, she's mixed and, and she wrote a very compelling, uh, article about, uh, her discomfort and objection to, to the whole thing, which I, I, I liked. And I think, I think it's basically true for most, for most treatments and say choices of medications, it's not going to make a big difference, but in certain cases it's going to make a big difference. Um, we're going to find sickle cell trait, for instance, in more patients who have African ancestry than those who have European ancestry. Uh, we're going to find G6PD uh, deficiency and some other um, you know, red cell uh, mutations and variation based on where people come from. And that, that, those are some examples where we can see concrete differences in how certain populations are going to respond to drugs. Well, as this area evolves, we're not going to determine your pharmacology by your population. We'll actually do genetic testing and say, right. yep, because you have this gene, you should get that medicine, not the other one. And people, I think, by and large, are comfortable with the idea of personalized medicine. Yeah. And in fact, more and more people are happy to send off their own you know, genetic material off to companies like 23andMe and get a, a personalized statement of uh, you know, their genetic composition. I would argue that personalized medicine is evolutionary medicine, it one is. of its faces. Yeah, but genes, again, genes are not everything when it comes to evolution. And there are certain universals, like fever, <laughs> things that happen to all of us that mm -hmm. have an evolutionary basis. And some of those conserved traits are some of the most interesting when it comes to thinking about evolution. And that's where I was going before. The conserved yeah. traits just swamp out the ones that vary among us. I think, I think that's true, too. I'm interested in human genetic variation. I think it's an important thing to teach our students. They need to know uh, why it is that certain populations might be, have a higher risk for certain diseases. I'm thinking about Ashkenazi, Jew, Ashkenazi Jews and things like uh, Tay-Sachs disease. Tay-Sachs disease, which is neuroproliferative. Yeah, yeah, which 
is thought to probably be because of a genetic bottleneck that increased the proportion of those genes by random chance in that population. And there are other, other examples of certain traits that are in, in, in uh, different populations that also have a, a genetic basis that may actually reflect natural selection. Yeah, well, so a thing you hear about a lot is, well, we know evolution isn't correct because this thing, Tay-Sachs disease, doesn't make any sense. Well, I'll agree that it doesn't make any sense to that speaker's limited understanding of evolution, but no, it's not a bit surprising to people who actually understand evolution. And let, let me channel, we'll say, a non-evolutionary MD that says, well, I don't care if evolution has anything to do with this. All I need to know is that people of this ethnic group have a higher rate of a disease, and who cares about the evolution? It's not going to change how I treat my patient at all. So I'll say the same thing to that that I say about paramedics diagnosing. When it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You can treat what you see, and you'll get the right answer. But when it does matter, and you get the wrong answer, everything you do turns out to be the wrong thing for that patient. If you think, for example, that uh, this uh, dissecting aneurysm is a uh, myocardial infarction, and you give this guy anticoagulants, he's going to die really fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, good point. And let, let's, let's refer to your list here, because you wrote an extensive list. And would you mind if I actually post this on, no, on the blog? No, I'll give it to you as an e-copy so you don't have to transcribe it. Delightful, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we talked about something uh, transitional. So many transitional systems retain some functionality but can create a problem. So Waldire's lymphatic ring is the idea that your tonsils are surveying stuff that enters your GI tract. But I interpret the appendix as part of the Waldire's lymphatic ring at the other end of the sterile part of the GI tract. It's monitoring for backflow of bacteria from the colon, which is uh, stool is about 40% bacteria by weight I've read, mm. into the small intestine, which is supposed to be sterile. Or relatively, so, relatively sterile. Relatively sterile. So my understanding of the appendix is that it's a survey instrument. But when the thing gets impacted and inflamed, we have to remove it or you may die of peritonitis. So this is an example of a um, evolved adaptation which is in a transitional stage. It's becoming a more attrited, more um, vestigial than it once was, perhaps. And it can create problems. When it creates problems, we think it was a mistake of nature, but at least at some point, it was probably helping more of us than it was harming, at long enough to have kids. And this, I think, is a, is a terrific example. Uh, people that have studied evolutionary biology and have a more than cursory understanding of natural selection and how our bodies have evolved, we're going to tend to be skeptical of the idea that we have completely useless organs and or things that, that are... Uh, spare parts. Or, or just spare parts. Yeah. I mean, certainly those things exist in the natural world. There are whales retain a, a part of the pelvis bone, vestigial, yeah, yeah. which doesn't pr maybe doesn't serve any purpose, <laughs> and and certainly is much smaller and uh, is barely recognizable as uh, you know part of the skeleton that, that used to be uh, allow the animal to have quadrupedal you know locomotion. Um, so so yeah, we can find vestigial organs in in nature, but it doesn't mean that our appendix, our wisdom teeth, our tonsils, our adenoids are completely useless organs that do nothing but cause harm to us. 
And I, 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 you know what? Again, coffee. I'd never heard this idea that it could actually be surveying um, you know, microbes that are that are traveling from the colon up into the small intestine. I love that idea. It's full of lymphoid breasts. Yeah, that's part of. But I should mention that. And, and it's, it's not. By the way, it's not I a said ring, this. The I said this kind of. The tonsils make more more sense in terms of surveying the microbial exposures that are going downwards because they're in a place where they're going to be. You know, they're going to contact anything that you put in your mouth. But the, the appendix is sort of out of the stream. It's right at the ileocecal right? valve where but the colon the, but can backflush into the small intestine. Listen, fantastic idea. I think it's, it's cool. But I actually set this one up to set up the next thing I was going to say, which is yeah. one of the criticisms of evolutionary medicine mm-hmm. is that it's just so stories. That we go, oh, I bet it works this way. Which is exactly what I just did to play with that very idea. And listen, my enthusiasm for the idea mostly has to do with its novelty. I haven't, I haven't heard that idea. Before. I don't know that it's true. And I'm it speculating true. it. And, right. But you can see it feels, it feels like it makes so much sense. Well, well the problem is with I... evolutionary medicine and evolutionary <laughs> psychology is that sometimes we don't complete the loop and test these hypotheses out. You know? Right. So there's, I, have, I have two things to say about this. And so many readers know that we're talk, when we talk about just-so stories, just-so stories, the term came from Rudyard Kipling, and they, uh, the idea was that, it ex- that these, these brief stories were silly stories that were made up and explained why the leopard got its spots or why the giraffe had a lo- has a long neck and these kinds of ideas. And Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewontin famously wrote a paper called The Spandrels of San Marco. I probably read it, but I don't recall yeah, it. Yeah, to do with Spandrels. I think that's a partial, a partial name. i got to look it up now. I'm just yeah, saying the spandrels of San Marco and the Panglossian paradigm. All right, so Pangl- Pangloss was, saw the world as as uh, he wanted it to be, and it was a critique of the adaptationist program. So this this is a really uh, impactful paper. It has it's had a I'd say a disproportionate um, influence on biology and evolution. Uh, it was published in 1979, and the basic idea is that sometimes a spandrel is an architectural feature that is just a side effect of other things and it's not it's not the it's not the reason for being and so the spandrel didn't evolve uh, for any particular reason except as a byproduct of of uh didn't evolve <laughs> doesn't occur because architects wanted it to be there it's just a necessary byproduct of that kind of building construction like the so, arches and old cathedrals yeah. so the idea would be that if we pick any given trait say a human trait language for instance or anything else that we might think of the argument would be that if we come up with some evolutionary adaptationist reason for being uh, that it serves some function and is useful that we could be misidentifying it and, and making a mistake so so you said you you pitched the idea that the appendix might serve a function which surveys the microbial environment as it's going from the colon into the small intestine and has this lymphoid tissue which provides some benefit to the organism in responding to that uh, event and the idea would be this is a just-so story. So that, that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that you're absolutely right. If we stopped there, that would be a mistake. And if you try to publish that idea without any evidence, you're not going to get very far. Rightly so. And, so, and, and people are going to say, yeah, well, this is, look, look at this crackpot just come up with this idea. Um, and that is one but of the... But some of that stuff sneaks through. Some of it does. And so some, so some garbage ideas without testing do, does sneak through. And that's not a good thing. The better way to do this is to say, all right... What if, what if, the, the null hypothesis would be, 
the appendix has no function and is just there to as a risk factor for appendicitis, and so therefore we should remove it. But as an alternative hypothesis, we could say, well, it provides some function, and it evolved for perhaps the reason that you say. The other idea is that it's a safe house for beneficial bacteria, that in the event of, of having diarrhea, you undergo this rapid transit that flushes out your, your gut, and you have this little reservoir, a little blind, no blind, flora. A blind alley of beneficial microbes that can then repopulate, or repopulate, sorry, <laughs> uh, the gut in a way that's beneficial to you. Copyright Joe <laughs> right? And other people have argued that the appendix has undergone selection to become smaller. It's smaller than the, than the massive cecum that we see in herbivorous gorillas or in rabbits. And that there, that there are various constraints that keep it from going away entirely. And in fact, Randy Nessie has written something about that. So we have at least three evolutionary reasons. One being that it provides some adaptive function, uh, or two, two that provide some function. One that there's some evolutionary constraint preventing it from going away completely. Um, to contrast against the, the the null hypothesis, and we should look for lines of evidence and perhaps direct, direct tests that would allow you to distinguish between those, those alternatives. And it's possible that the real answer is one that we've never thought of before. But the exercise of going through this is absolutely what we should be doing as scientists, as you know, custodians of human health, and as people that are interested in pushing science forward. To say that this whole line of reasoning is flawed and we shouldn't engage in it is a complete, you know, No, we should chase idea. just those stories, but they're hypotheses till we test them. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I hate about this, all right, now that you got me started on, on, uh, uh, on Gould and Lewontin, <laughs> is that we never do the opposite. So when people have non-evolutionary ideas, and you can just, that suppose we think that, uh, you know, that we should be giving um, you know, dopamine, low-dose dopamine to patients, who are sick to preserve renal function, for instance. That's an idea that had nothing to do with evolution. It turns out it was wrong, and we don't do renal dose dopamine uh, anymore, and it's or and dobutamine. Th those those drug regimens have disappeared. It doesn't mean that the whole process that it, that led us to do you know testing of physiology was completely misguided. It has some some benefits, but it's not like. We're not going to reject all of non-evolutionary science because a few ideas were wrong. No, absolutely not. We don't need to have an evolutionary explanation for everything we do. But where there is one, it's helpful to understand it. Yeah. Oh, so the other example of, of um, you know, bad medicine, I could, we could go on and on. There's, there are tons and tons of examples of useless therapies. But it doesn't mean that we should just reject non-evolutionary thinking. Um, or, or just science, the mechanisms of disease. We do have to understand something about mechanisms of disease, but we have to also understand something about the evolution of disease. Well, I'm actually glad you raised that point. So one of the things I noted in the uh, book that we discussed mm -hmm. is a criticism that, that medical scientists too often look at the proximate cause of disease rather than the evolutionary roots of it. Well, the proximate cause most of the time is going to have more direct clinical applicability than the evolutionary roots of it. We should look at proximal causes. This is another example of why we don't want to go down an either-or path. We need both. Luckily, there are people like you who like to research the evolutionary uh, roots of medicine, and we absolutely need that. But it doesn't mean that people who are chasing some other path are doing something wrong. There's nothing wrong with looking at proximate causes of disease. That's very useful stuff to do. I mean, that's right. And this is a key misconception <clears throat> that 
uh, that people have. There are different levels of analysis, and we think about the proximate and the ultimate. And we can understand a mechanism, say, for instance, you know, the, the renin-angiotensin system that we talked about and how, how, it, is, how it affects the transit of salt uh, from you know, bloodstream into urine and that sort of, sort of thing. Uh, and understanding those mechanisms is important, but also understanding why they might have evolved and testing those ideas um, is, is equally important. So most of the people that are advocating for an evolutionary approach really say that we should be approaching these things at, at at least two levels of analysis, the proximate and the ultimate. Yeah, certainly, and I'm sure there are more besides that. Uh, we're not obliged to provide an evolutionary explanation in all cases to say that it still may be useful to hunt for one. I don't need to know before I start that there is an evolutionary explanation of what it is, that something is this way leads me to look for evolutionary roots. But let me play the devil's advocate again and just say, uh, I'll just channel a nephrologist who's saying, you know what, I don't actually believe in evolution. I didn't study it. I did very well in medical school. I scored high on my boards. Uh, my patients like me. I get good clinical outcomes. I don't need to know any of this stuff. And, and you're just, you're, I'm unconvinced. I think there's a lot of really good doctors out there who at least aren't giving much thought to evolutionary medicine. Um, but however good they may be, they'd be a little better if they thought about it a little more. So I, th I think that's true. And that's where you have to do a little bit more looking. Because if, if and this is true, 99% of the people that are engaged in medicine are not taking at least an explicitly evolutionary approach the way that we are. And we think that we're doing fine. Uh, and if that's what everybody thinks, then we're, they're not going to. There'll be some seriously blinkered uh, thinking and, and blind spots that we'll never see the areas where we might actually do better. But really, I think the success or failure of the enterprise of evolutionary medicine is going to lie in finding those distinctions and showing people how what they're doing is wrong. There are probably lots of docs out there who don't think about multiculturalism, and they're still excellent doctors, but to some degree they'd be even better if they also thought about multiculturalism. And there are probably lots of things I don't consider uh, routinely enough, and I would be a better doc if I thought of them more often. Okay. Hey, the, the previous discussion when we kind of got into the proximate and ultimate yeah. uh, distinction is this idea of um, Tinbergen's four questions. Have you heard this? No. So this is this is basic. We're on Wikipedia, by the we're way. We're on Wikipedia. So we're Tim using Bergen's, we're using Tim medical Bergen's, journal here. Absolutely. Tim Bergen's four questions. So Tim Bergen uh, looked at different categories of questions and explanations, uh, and there's there really there are, there are four. So the one is ontogeny, and that's development. So we can look at developmental explanations for why things are the way they are. And so we could say that um, you know. We can go through the whole stages of development from a single cell into a full adult to explain why you are the way that you are. So that's ontogeny or development. Mm -hmm. Second is mechanism. And this is what most doctors spend all of our time thinking about. Mechanistic explanations for how something in your body works. Mm -hmm. So the heart pumps blood because of you know, contraction of cardiomyocytes, for instance. That would be a mechanistic explanation. Then there's phylogeny. And that's thinking about 
the, the historical arc of evolution that's led to a, the, the branching pattern that we see that, that, that has led to your own specific lineage evolving the way that you did. And, and we, spend, we actually spend some time in medicine thinking about this, not so much with human evolution, but we spend a lot of time thinking about the phylogeny of, say, influenza, or the phylogeny of HIV, or the phylogeny of West Nile virus. How about the phylogeny of, uh, of dark skin to protect us from sun cancer and light skin to help us make vitamin D, depending on how much light there was where we lived? Another example. And then but that, lead, that bleeds into function or adaptation. So this is another, the, the fourth one. So we've gone through development, mechanisms, phylogeny, and adaptation. And if, if uh, pigment and skin evolved to protect us from UV damage of our cells, which is the dominant idea for why uh, why we see the patterns on the planet of dark versus light skinned, then that is a functional or an adaptationist approach. So this schema actually illustrates one of the problems people often have with evolution and other scientific concepts, which is that for clarity, it's nice to organize these things into these, uh, this is a four by four grid, um, or two by two grid, I meant to say. Tim Bergen's four questions. Tim Bergen's four questions. But... Nothing fits neatly into one of these boxes. These are conceptual boxes that help us understand ideas, but they bleed into each other. The margins of them are actually blurry gray zones. These are mm, circles that have some degree of Venn overlap as well. For example, phylogeny and functional adaptation. Another reason, I think, that people should be a little bit more um, aware of evolution is, we mentioned earlier the rules are simple, but the way that it games out constantly surprises us. We're not good yet at predicting how those rules play out optimally. A good example of that would be that we're about to be able to intervene in our own evolution. We're about to start tinkering with our own genome. That scares me because I remember in the 70s mm. how many kids were named um, um, Rambo after the movie came out. Okay, I don't really think... I don't remember those kids. I don't think it's a good idea... To have the next generation, I think all Rambo the boys are going to be six feet eight inches tall, and all the girls will be blonde. Right. You know, um, we're going to make stupid decisions like that if we don't become more thoughtful. The fact is, there's a reason most of us aren't six eight. By the way, Joe is quite tall. I'm average height, but on a bell shaped. There's curve, no. There's no. Uh, no one would mistake me for Rambo, though. The bell uh, mm-hmm. of the bell shaped curve, the center part of that bell is essentially, on average, the best balance between the benefits of being smaller and the benefits of being larger, or whatever it is the bell-shaped curve is about. In fact, uh, in some interesting studies that have been done on the way we recognize beauty in human beings, when you combine features from a bunch of different models, what you find is the more exactly average the features are, the more beautiful the person is rated, often with one thing that will stand out and make them look exceptional. So they'll have one unusual feature. In a parallel study, if you take what are considered the best features of a whole bunch of, say, female models and put them together, you get a grotesque outcome, absolutely grotesque. The point being, nature has optimized us, on average, to be as close to the center of that function curve. That center of that curve is the point of maximal adaptability. And so if you want to be a basketball player, being taller is better. Right. But you know what? You don't see a lot of 50-year-olds playing basketball because they don't age as well. They're too big for longevity. On the other hand, smaller people die every time we get into fights. So there's a sort of average that balances out the pros and cons of these trade-offs. So, yeah, I mean, 
we'll see what happens with CRISPR and this idea of gene editing and uh, especially the, the kind of gene editing that evolves the germline, which uh, I think there was a, a, a recent um, example of this. In which, uh, so if we, people are, tend to be pretty comfortable with gene editing when it comes to just, say, looking at somatic changes. So if there was a, a gene that caused, uh, you know, that increased your risk for heart disease, if we were able to uh, do a, a change to your, your genome and, and prevent or, or cure something like heart disease, most people will be in favor of that. We're less comfortable with something which is going to be then passed on to the next generation. But those things are coming. And in fact, those kinds of examples are. And so maybe, how about colorblindness? What if we could cure colorblindness? Well, that gets into the, the whole idea about what is a disease. Well, and it what turns is, out what is a that your rods are much more sensitive in low light than your uh, cones are. Yeah. And uh, I think more sensitive also to movement. So it may well be that, uh, for example, if we had um, another period of massive volcanic eruptions, the atmosphere is full of dust, the sky is dimmer, the people who uh, were colorblind will now be able to see better than the people who now have good color vision. So you're giving, so you're giving a a rationale, not so much a rationale, but you're you're arguing that that our human variation is a good thing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and as, as, I can't say this strongly enough. The broader the range of genetics we have, yeah. short of actual pathologies, the more adaptable we are when the environment changes. And Evolution, so those of you who have struggled a little bit with evolution, listen up. Evolution is not about striving towards some ultimate right answer. It's about constantly catching up in adaptation to an ever-changing environment. So the best evolution for today is not the best evolution for tomorrow. If we cut off our genetic variability, for example, if we got rid of everybody who now tends toward obesity because there's so much fast food around us, the next time we hit a famine, we're going to die out. Those are the people who can survive famines. So you're, so you're against a directed evolution in the way that the, the CRISPR might allow. At our current extremely low level of wisdom. Yeah. By the way, don't get me started on the whole idea of calling ourselves Homo sapiens. I would like to be called Coffee the Wise from now on. Coffee the Wise. That's yeah, what that's like. how I would like to be addressed. We should call ourselves Homo Narcissans. That's a name we've earned. <laughs> Listen, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> So, yeah, so just because we want to teach evolution in medical school does not mean that we're advocating for a uh, rapid, directed evolution by means of gene editing and that sort of thing. I would like to think an early lesson yeah. would be humility. Right. And listen, I think skepticism, critical thinking, humility, those are all features that I associate with this uh, mode of thinking. And, and I, I think it's directly useful in the way that we've talked about. So another way of talking about the bell-shaped curve, by the way, I see I had a note to myself to mention, is that the subtle and unexpected Nash equilibria of evolution ought to inspire caution with regard to genetic engineering. That is the summary of what I was just saying. All right. The Nash equilibria. I've got to go back and look that up. If we had to look up Tenbergen's four questions, I have to look up Nash equilibria too. So Nash equilibrium is essentially the sort of organically developing equilibrium state in game theory mm -hmm. when um, there is no um, absolute win-loss uh, equilibrium. Cool. Well, I wonder, so we've talked now for, it's been a little bit more than an hour, if we should uh, start to wrap this up. We've kept, definitely covered a lot of ground. We've talked about uh, multiple different domains of both evolutionary biology 
and uh, human evolution and how evolution applies to the evolution of tumors, microorganisms, microbiota, how we are unwitting agents of selection when we're choosing different treatment modalities, when we don't take into account human variation and think about ways in which uh, that, that genetic, uh, those differences may be useful to us in, in different circumstances, how uh, rapid environmental change uh, is a driver of disease. There's been, we covered a ton of different topics here probably more than, I, more than I can barely uh, keep up with. But there's no question in my mind, just to kind of bring this, this together, that this enterprise of applying evolutionary concepts to human health and medicine is massively important. And we ignore it at our own peril. I truly think that we kill patients by not thinking about this. And that we don't, we don't know what we're missing because we're so, so focused on that mechanistic uh, domain of Tinbergen's four questions of causation. So... I would love to see more evolution in medical school. Uh, you know, we've, I've had my own limited success here at UNM. We're one of a, a few number of medical schools in which at least some students get some appreciation for this, but we're very far from it being uh, woven into the whole curriculum. And meanwhile, there's lots of other stuff that's competing for uh, equal time. Well, I've sat in on your classes. I think they're excellent, and I hope you keep fighting the good fight. We'll keep fighting. And on that note, uh, thanks for listening. I hope you've stayed with us. And I do want to mention two things before we go. So number one is that these are the kinds of debates that I want to encourage at this summer's fourth annual meeting of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. I am the chair of the program committee. And so we're coming up with a terrific conference that should be interesting to both evolutionary biologists, anthropologists, medical professionals of all stripes, and even interested people in the general public. This is going to be in Park City, Utah, uh, August 1st through the 4th. And look on the blog for more information about that. And don't forget to recommend Jill Alcock as a TED speaker. You're too kind to coffee. I, and again, before we, before we sign out, we can't sign out on that note, I do want to say that uh, starting tomorrow, and maybe actually today when this podcast gets uh, released, but I am going to be recording a new streaming video version uh, of the podcast, so a video cast called Evolutionary Medicine with, with Kate Rusk on Inertia TV. So details to come. Check out the blog. And don't forget to like us on iTunes or whatever streaming service you get this podcast on. I like you. Can you untie me now? <laughs> the hostage situation is resolved. All right. Until next week. <laughs>